scripture this morning is Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. A promise to a broken and oppressed nation, God's people. A promise that was needed. A promise that would came to a people who had fallen over and over and over again. And God, and being rich in mercy and grace, provides a promise. We find that verses 1 through 10 of Isaiah chapter 11. The word says, They shall come forth, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, he shall not judge by what he sees and what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and a little child, child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Now, for those of you who may not have grown up like myself, observing or celebrating Advent, the word Advent in and of itself may come off very Catholic. It seems like, it, like the very first time that I experienced Advent, I didn't know what was going on. I came and grew up in a Baptist church, and I went to a, another Baptist church who observed Advent, and as soon as they said it, I was like, what is this? I didn't know what it was. But over the years, as many of you have experienced being here, Advent has now become something absolutely necessary. It has become something absolutely necessary for observation. It has become absolutely necessary in recognition. Advent is very important. Advent is what our souls need. But I assure you, this is not just a Catholic thing. Advent is the joining of two Latin words. Ad, which means to, and venere, which means to come. So, ad venere, to come. But throughout history, the word advent became very shortened and became identified with something very important that distinguishes this idea of just simply coming. The word Latin word advent becomes shortened and takes it one step better. It means arrival. It's definitive. It's not a hope 
anymore. It's not simply something that you're just looking forward to. Advent is something you recognize that has come. But there was an arrival of recognition. So let me ask you a question. Can someone please tell me what event in history do we celebrate the arrival of? <laughs> I mean, our calendar, our years are changed by it. He has completely shifted the entirety of human reality by his presence. Advent is the arrival of the promised son, the promised king, the Messiah king, the savior of their world, wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, the promised child, the arrival. So Advent is the arrival. We celebrate. We celebrate the arrival of the promise. Before I get emails, I just want to recognize that Jesus was not actually born on December 25th. We recognize that. It was more along the lines of the end of September or October. But I find it absolutely necessary that Advent happened during this time. Why? It's dark. It's cold. Especially here in Alaska. I did not realize the weightiness of the darkness until I lived here for a while. It's a real thing. It's a real thing to bear that burden of darkness for such a long time. And on top of that, you have the cold, the crazy drivers, the ice and the snow. So there's a lot of things going on up here that bears a heavy burden and weight upon the soul. But Advent is a time to spend with family. Building each other up in love and surrounding yourselves with the joy found in the birth of Jesus. There's a reason we get together. And there's a reason that we have joyous time together. That we have meals together and laugh together and share gifts with one another. It's not just Saturnalia. We redeemed that. It's a celebration of the greatest gift that's been given to all of us who are found in Christ Jesus. The greatest gift of all of humanity. It's surrounded by the birth of Jesus. That Emmanuel... God with us has happened. It actually has happened from Isaiah 9. That Yeshua, meaning God's, uh, Jesus' name Yeshua, meaning God's salvation call, has come to us. That God has responded. That the cries of the oppressed, the cries of those dead in the trespasses and sins, needing a salvation, needing deliverance, has seen action. Has seen God's work. That God is with us. The cry of our eternal king from a manger would soon eliminate the cries for salvation with tears of joy. God has come down and tabernacle with his people, not just as a cloud or fire, but in the flesh. God heard the cries of mankind and responded with action. But throughout history, Advent not only recognizes the arrival of Jesus Christ, but the joy in our souls for His faithful arrival in our lives when life is cold and dark. Winter can be viewed as reflective for those who are going through a rough time. There seems to be more darkness than light in your life. You wake up hoping to see the sunrise coming through the, the window, only to realize that darkness remains. Darkness bears heavy upon the burdens of the souls of those who dwell here. The suicide rate in the military is already bad, but up here it's getting even worse. 
the death rate of those who wander the streets in the middle of the night while freezing to death has actually gone up. It's up to over 50 now, just this winter. The darkness, the winter, does things to people. It's harsh. It's hard. But it's not just physical. It bears upon the soul. There's an absence of the warmth of the sun cresting the horizon when you need some reprieve. When all you long for is just some little warmth, some wind, some W in your life, just to give you hope for the next day. Sometimes it's denied you. It's colder. Anticipation builds upon the souls for those in whom hope is found. Which we find a wonderful verse in Proverbs 13. This is what happens to people who hope too long. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. A desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The main theme of this morning, the focus of which we're going to be in, is this. Jesus came to fulfill the desires of hope, to become the tree of life. He came to become the tree of life. But before we dive in, to what hope is. Let's talk about Israel's situation. The promise that would come to a people group, a promised covenant people group, that God said of His own, this is my portion. This is mine. These people are mine. Deuteronomy 32. A promise would be given to them. So what is going on with Israel during this time of this promise? It's coming to an oppressed, punished people who are under judgment. We find this in Isaiah 1. We find this in Isaiah 1. This is being said about Israel. How the faithful city has become a whore. She was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her and now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's case does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall, uh, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desire, trees. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. I would say that Israel is in a tight spot. A little bit rough. A little bit hard. This is not just a simple mistake. This is not somebody making a white lie, and the Lord just pouncing on them with severity. This comes 
after years and years and years and years of unfaithfulness. They have had a long history of placing their hope in the wrong place and in the wrong thing. Fear of war and destruction, they seek help from other nations, Assyria and Egypt, while worshiping their gods. So this is not simply a transaction of economic sense. They're not giving gold to Egypt and Assyria, saying, hey, we'll just give you money if you'll come and protect us. What they're saying is, we recognize that your gods are more successful than ours, so we're going to pay homage to your gods, worship your gods, so that way he can come and protect us too. In the ancient Near East, you don't just simply buy protection. It's not like they're mob bosses of the ancient Near East. They would give gold from the temple, their own temple, the temple of Yahweh, and give it to these nations and say, your gods send them to protect us. And they worship them. They want to build some wealth or blessing. They would make deals with the nations by trading gold again from the temple for goods and gods to appeal for prosperity and fertility. I've talked many times about Ashtaroth, Marduk, and Molech and the Baals. That they would appeal to these idols in their homes in hopes that prosperity would come their way. The modern day Molech is the abortion system. That you would place your child or your baby upon a heart-burning coal molech to destroy the child and hope that blessing would come your way. They did these things. And the Lord was just going to let it pass. The covenant people, <clears throat> the people that God took as his portion, Deuteronomy 32, has been unfaithful over and over again. Remember the woman at the well with Jesus in John 4? She is a representation of Israel's unfaithfulness and the current situation with Rome. Go back and check it out. She's had five husbands, and the one you're with is not even your husband. Rome was not espoused. They were not beckoned to you. But they occupied the space. The people found themselves in the midst of judgment. They've been exiled to Babylon. In like true fashion, Israel repents once again, and while in the midst of judgment, this is not the first time or the second time this has occurred, this is habitual. At this time, it has become habitual at this point, almost as if it's expected. So God makes a promise to the people that there would come a branch of the Lord. It's very important. A branch of the Lord. A root of Jesse that would become a new tree. Because guess what? The current tree is not bearing fruit. The current tree has nothing. There's nothing to it. So how are they supposed to have find redemption and everlasting fruit and bear good fruit if there's nothing coming from it? Something new. A root of Jesse that would come from within Israel. Be a new tree. This is what John the Baptist had to say in Matthew chapter 3. Listen to his word very carefully. Matthew chapter 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees, and this is at his baptism, he's out preaching repentance and baptizing people, so Pharisees and Sadducees come. Coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, he doesn't mix words, does he? Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He's talking about Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10 talks about this, that the Lord will lay waste, and that his hue would cut down the trees of wickedness. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Very intriguing. 
And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up stones to raise up, uh, to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. <clears throat> so what is this promise? What is this promise that we're finding in Israel? Why is this language being... That it's twofold. This promise is twofold. We see it once in Isaiah chapter 4, starting in verse 2. God is very adamant about ensuring that His promises are sure. He's letting the people know, look, I know where you're at, and I'm sure that you are well aware of where you're at. You put yourself here, but I'm working. Chapter 4, verse 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord, there it is again, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Fire inspire anyone? Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Now, is the, if that language seems very familiar to you, that's tabernacle language. That is exactly what the Lord did when He dwelt amongst the people in the wilderness. That He dwelt with them by a cloud by day and fire by night. That the tabernacle would go with the people and He was there. His Spirit dwelt there in the tabernacle and He walked with the people. He was there with them. But during this time, He was not there. They were under judgment. They were getting ready to get exiled. They were getting thrown out of their own land that God promised them because they could not covenantly keep faithful. So they lost it. So, he said, I will come and tabernacle with you. Which is why Isaiah 11 now makes more sense. Let's read through it again. I'll read through it quickly. Listen to the language now. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a Davidic son, King David, and a branch from its root shall bear fruit. Because currently Israel is not bearing fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What happened at Jesus' baptism? The Holy Spirit came down as what? A dove and rested where? On his and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Which means he's not a partaker. He can't be swayed. You can't give him money. You can't convince him in thought. You can't try to manipulate him because why? He will judge with righteousness shall be the judge. The My apologies. 
Go with righteousness, he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Which means he's going to plead the case for those who can't plead for themselves, who didn't have money to go to court. He would be the one who pleads for them. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, disciplined by his word. He's going to guide his sheep by his word. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That means it's his foundation. The wolf shall dwell. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to this language. And try to think about where in the Bible this could have happened once uh, before. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lay down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Who rested on the seventh day? After all his work was done, the Lord did. Before sin, what could you imagine Eden was like? Were bears killing cows and calves? Were adders biting at children? There was no disruption in creation. It was good. Very good. So what's the promise being made here? Look, I'm not just going to redeem you from another foreign army. I'm going to redeem you from that which oppresses you and enslaves you and has brought death upon you from the very beginning. It's going to come to the root of Jesse. That a new tree will come. That you're going to be drafted into to bear fruit. That is a great hope. Brother, can you imagine the people of Israel, while you're there being cast out of your own home and exiled to a foreign nation, having to go to work and enslavement to these people, having to hear that? Man, they have a lot of hope. They have a lot of hope. But something happened. Something interesting happened with Israel. It's a pretty incredible promise, is it not? So the people of Israel waited on the Lord while they were in Babylon. You know that whole Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans and prosper you. That was that. The Lord told the people, you're going to be in Babylon. But there are plans, there are works. Plans to prosper you, give you hope and a future. Then they would be released. The people of Israel would be released back to Jerusalem. And that's where you find it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now with hope in their hearts and the promises on their minds, they sought to rebuild Israel by their own hands. Did we not just read? Who would create this? Who would create all this? Who would create this new kingdom, this new tree, this new garden, this new, new everything? Who would create it? The Lord said, I will. What is Israel's thinking? We will. So they leave. 
They leave Babylon in their sins. So their first thought was, you know what? Only if we become covenantly faithful people again, maybe God's Spirit will come back and dwell with us. So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah showcases Israel's trying to get attempt to become covenant faithful again. Let me ask you a question. In Hosea, in Hosea, whenever his wife, Gomer, went and became a prostitute, was she absolved of that prostitution? No. Hosea purchased, made the price to redeem her back. He paid the cost. But Israel, for some reason, is like, you know what, we're going to clean ourselves up. We'll do this ourselves. So they tried. And then they thought they would rebuild Israel. You find that in the book of Nehemiah. And the temple, so they rebuilt it. And they did all this stuff. And they're like, alright, now God will come. Now His Spirit will come. Now the promises can happen because we did all the stuff. Did it happen? No. So for 400 years, they sat and they prayed and they cried. Because they thought they did all the right things. I mean, we said we'd follow the law again, like we did the other hundred times we said we would. We, we did the temple. I know we broke it down and gave the gold away, but we rebuilt it. I mean, it's not as nice as it was once, but it's there. We have walls again. I mean, we're like a nation. So God, where are you at? 400 years. We'd be this way for 400 years. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. They would cry out to the Lord for 400 years in repentance, awaiting for the promise of the coming Messiah. Messiah. The root of Jesse. Who would cause this. The restructuring everything. Israel had a lot of hope. But their hope would begin to take form in such a way that many would just absolutely miss it when the Lord fulfilled it. Their hope would develop from the desire to find rest and reprieve from their oppression and slavery, and their trust would be placed in a military king who had come to deal with the Roman problem. When before their promises were so much greater than that, but their hope morphed into this, you know what, if we just get rid of Rome, we'll be good again. I mean, we don't need the Spirit of God to come or anything like that, because we've seen that. They have been conquered three times in that 400 years. Persia, Greek, or Greece, people of Greek, whatever, Greek people, and Rome. 400 years. So they've been a long time not being a people, not being a nation. They've been oppressed for a long time. So their heart got sick. And they thought, hey, all we need to do is get rid of Rome, and we'll be happy. But here is the real problem. This is the real problem that we deal with ourselves. Israel had, uh, has had their enemies removed over and over again. And yet they find themselves ensnared over and over again. They would pray and seek God and repent for their sins, only to have the armies taken away. And they're like, all right, sweet. The Lord has delivered us back to sinning. And then another one, oh, Lord, we messed up again. We're so sorry. We promise we'll follow. And they removed the oppression. And they're like, all right, sweet. Bring the idols back in. Over and over and over again. 
there's a much bigger problem that ensnared not only Israel, but ourselves, all of humanity. The problem is not a foreign army. Their problem was not that they were not strong enough warriors to fend for themselves. Their problem is that they are enslaved and under oppression of something eternally greater and infinitely more deadly than sword and shield. Their problem was their dead, sinful hearts. They would receive deliverance only to be caught up once again. They would repent for their sins, receive reconciliation with God only to end up back where they were delivered from. That's basically the point of Hosea. They would be delivered from Egypt into the promised land only to seek Egypt's assurance to secure the promised land. Isn't that funny? The Lord would deliver them from Egypt, carry them to the promised land by His faithfulness, and then whenever trouble came to the promised land, they'd run back to Egypt and be like, Oh, can you help us? I know we were delivered from you, but we could really use some chariots. The problem would require an eternal, infinite, and sacrificial offering of righteousness to deliver them once and for all. It would require a new root. It would require a new tree. Because this old tree was not bearing any fruit. It was dead. The problem would be met with the arrival, the advent of Jesus. So here's the question. Here's the question. We're talking a lot about hope. So what's the question? What is hope? What is hope? If hope deferred makes the heart sick, and a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. What is hope? What was Israel's hope? Was it misplaced? Was their hope short-sighted? Was Israel's hope faded from the years? Today we're going to say what hope is. Hope is two things. One, it's desire. Hope is made up of two things. One, it's desire. There, in hope, there must be an expectation of an outcome. There has to be an end goal. There is something that prods the heart and mind to have a goal or objective in the desire. And guess what? The desire could be either good or bad. You could desire good things or bad things. Israel was in a place where their hope was that they would be delivered. At the very first, they wanted God to come and dwell with them once again whenever they would come out from Babylon. But now it's been so long, now all they care about is just the removal of Rome and they would be fine. The desire has changed. Let me give you a couple of examples of good and bad hope that come from World War II. This is a good hope or a good desire. Those who were under tyranny, suffering pain, and death of Nazi Germany desire to be absolved from such actions. Deliverance and relief from suffering are good desires. Here's a bad one. Nazi Germany sought to create utopia based upon the perspectives and ideologies of their desired world. And those perspectives and ideologies were found in eugenics. These are bad desires. What was Israel's desire? Israel's desire was also to be absolved from tyranny, suffering, and pain of the occupied Romans in the land that the Lord gave to them as an inheritance. So is this a good or bad desire? It's a good one. 
They were under oppression, slavery, mistreatment, persecution. What they desired was good. They were not able to freely worship God without the Romans receiving their acknowledgement and taxation for such worship and living. Could you imagine having to walk through that door and pay homage to the President of the United States by giving of alms before you were even allowed to worship? I know most of us wouldn't do it. Not all of us wouldn't do it. That's an easy no. But they would have to. For fear that they were going to be killed or injured or beaten. Their worship was hindered due to the oppression they were under by their own actions. Their prayer for over 400 years was for salvation and deliverance. But they didn't know how that saving cry would be answered. So the first component of hope, uh, hope is desire. The second one is this. Trust. Trust. In hope, trust is necessary to achieve the desire. There has to be trust involved that the desire would come about. You have to trust that something's going to happen for this thing to happen. If you're going to hope in something, there must be a place of trust to which that hope is directed to. But you can place trust in the wrong place. In hope, trust is necessary to achieve a desire. In the end goal, trust is found to give light to the possibility that the desire can even be fulfilled. Here are some examples, continuing with our examples of World War II. The trust present among those who sought salvation and deliverance from the tyranny, pain, and suffering from Nazi Germany was in that their cries would be heard by other nations around the globe to come to their aid. That there were honorable men and women around the world who would see the wickedness being put on display and come to the cries of the suffering. That was their trust. That something would happen. That action would happen. That somebody would come and give an account for the very wicked things that were happening to them. That deliverance would happen. Very intriguing, is it not? Here's Israel's trust. The trust present among the Israelites who were experiencing the tyranny, suffering, and pain from Roman oppression was found in the promises God made. That's the only thing that they trusted that they could have hope in. That God said He was going to do something. That God said He was going to act. That He was going to be here. That He was going to deliver His people. Therefore, they trusted that God would make good and be faithful on His word. That a root of Jesse would come. That a Messiah would come. That the promised King would come and deliver them. And like the cries of the suffering from World War II, God heard the cries of the suffering and responded with action. So what is hope? Here it is. Hope is placing our desire in the trust of someone or something. Hope is defined as placing our desire in the trust of someone or something. Because there's a lot of talk about desire and trust right now. If only this law would pass, then we would... If only a certain president would get elected, then things would get better. If only blank, then I, we, can, will, be blank. If only, if only, if only, if only. The first half of the if only statement displays to us where we place our trust. So if you find yourself saying if only, be careful of what comes next. Because you're saying you're placing your trust in something. And the second half of that if only statement is your desire. If only this, then that. 
this Advent season, what is your hope? What is the expectation or desire that should come that hope may be fulfilled in your life? What is it that you desire? And what trust are you placing to fulfill that desire? Because here's the reality. Most of us actually do not hope correctly. We do not hope correctly. We either desire incorrectly or trust incorrectly. Just like the Israelites did. They themselves placed the hope in God's word and thought and trusted that this military king would come and just get rid of Rome. And they would be good. They trusted incorrectly. And we see this. We see this in James 4. That the reason that we don't see things happening in our lives, the hope to which we have, is because we ask wrongly. We desire wrongly. Verses 1 through 3 of James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is, not, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. To spend it on your passions. Sometimes our desires are wrong. We haven't thought this through. Or we're fickle. We just simply want a little reprieve just for our own sake. Sometimes we trust incorrectly. Solomon shows us this. He is amongst the wisest who ever lived. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 2. Sometimes we trust incorrectly. I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this, is all, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. But listen to what the outcome is. Whenever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind. You know what's funny about the word vanity and wind? It's the word hevel. Hevel in Hebrew. I want you to think of this. Have any of you seen a cloud that looks like something? Alligator, mouse, whatever. No, oh, that looks like that. What do you think would happen if you reached out and grabbed it? Nothing. <coughs> Vapor. That's what that word means. 
It's an illusion that you chase after. You chase after it so hard, you do everything you can to get it, only to reach out and grab it, and nothing's there. You spend all that time, all that effort, all that work for reaching towards something that was not even there in the first place. Something worth grabbing onto. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing. He had done all this work, done all these things, and yet he found it to be all just mindless, formless void. Desire can become a mirage that we chase, seeking to obtain it by trusting ourselves only to taste the grit of sand from our vain efforts. So what does the outcome of hope look like then? And how could it be misled? Let's take a look. What does the outcome of hope look like? Good desire plus bad trust equals collateral damage. Good desire, bad trust equals collateral damage. I'm praying for a white Christmas. Is that a good desire? Yeah, it's nice, it's pretty. But what about all those who'd be affected by it? Who aren't in a place of comfort to enjoy it? It may in opposition to them, make things worse. I've heard this one a lot recently, which just blows my mind. Just nuke them. Just nuke them. The annihilation of innocent men and women and children. To relieve the terrible things that are happening. Just nuke them. I just want to be happy. Now, is joy and happiness a negative thing? No. But how you get it can be. Broken families and the destruction of your character. Guess what? The first Jewish war was exactly the situation. They desired to be relieved of their oppression and they went to war with Rome in 66 AD. Do you know what the collateral damage of that decision was? 1.1 million Jews killed and 97,000 imprisoned. They chose not to wait on the Lord any longer. They missed this idea of the coming Messiah King, thought it was going to be military, and just chose to take up arms themselves. And it cost them dearly. Collateral damage. Bad intentions plus good, uh, sorry, bad desire and good trust equals manipulation. Did you know that you could selfishly want something and use good manners, good personality, to manipulate somebody? We're not dive into that. Because you could desire wicked things of people into their face, do good things to achieve your ends. Sociopaths do that, just by the way, through manipulation to achieve their own desires. Bad intentions plus bad, or bad desires and bad trust equals just pure evil. That's easy. Good desire plus good trust equals blessing. Equals blessing. Having a good desire through a good method is blessing. So what was Israel's desire? Israel's desire was this, deliverance from oppression and slavery, good intentions. What was God's method? What was God's method? It was the best method. That he would be, they would be delivered from eternal oppression and slavery through death. And this is the beauty found in Romans chapter 6. This is the part that we celebrate. This is the part that they had missed. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. 
you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. This is the glorious fulfillment of the hope that we all have and the reason we celebrate Advent. Starting in verse 5. For we have been united with Him in a death like His. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. This is a far greater deliverance than simply a military presence. For the death He died, He died to sin once and for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God to instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What was brought was far greater than what they expected. The manner by which they thought deliverance would come by their own hands only brought death and destruction to them. They completely missed the promise of God. That the root of Jesse would come and they deliver them from a greater oppression. An eternal one. Something that wouldn't cause them to go back to doing the same old thing that they've been doing the entire time. They wouldn't have to get to this place where they're like, oh, we lost our land again. Oh, we lost this again. Oh, I messed up again. Oh, oh, oh. Because now you're no longer enslaved to sin. You can go to Christ with repentance and He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to do so. You don't have to make appeals. You don't have to wait 400 years anymore. This root of Jesse will come bear fruit. And that's the fruit that we get to enjoy. Our desire was to be set free from sin and death. And through the trusting of His promises and the fulfillment through death, we have been freed from our oppression and enslavement in Christ Jesus. So lastly, lastly, desire fulfilled. Desire fulfilled. What is it we're going to see? Proverbs 13, verse 12. The second half of it. They had their hope deferred and their hearts were sick. But what happened? Why do we celebrate Advent? But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Who is Christ supposed to be? The root of Jesse. A branch of Israel. Who would come and bear fruit. He arrived. He arrived. And he reigned with righteousness. And justice. And he conquered. He was a victorious king. He still is to this day. He arrived. There were a lot of sick hearts. There's a lot of those whose cries feel like they are falling. Hope begins to wane in the midst of the darkness. Hope begins to get tunnel vision as a glimpse of it seems to fade away. Israel was there. And then one morning a child would be born. A root of Jesse 
that would become the tree of life to them. All of those desires of salvation and deliverance would be fulfilled in him. His name, Yeshua, means God's salvation cry. That is God's response to their cries for salvation. They asked for it. He went into action and delivered. He arrived. But since their trust was wrong, they missed it. So don't miss it today. If you are here... And you don't know this tree? You don't know the reason that we even come in this room to celebrate Advent? Don't miss it. We bid you to come to Advent. Come. Because He is the response of God to your salvation's cry. He does bear upon His back the sin and shame of all of His people. Who all who repent are a cleanse of all unrighteousness. But the most beautiful part about His response, though, is that it's eternal. This is not temporary. This was not just a one and done, Israel's good for a time being, and then they have to fall back into trouble again. This is eternal. It is infinite, and it is living. No more are the days when we make an appeal, but grace is freely found in Jesus Christ. No more are the days when the oppression and enslavement of sin and death need be over any of us. For salvation and freedom are found in Jesus Christ. And like a strong tree planted by streams of water, his leaves will never wither and his fruit will never cease to bear. You can come and eat of this tree and have eternal life. There will always be some for you. So you can come to this tree. He is the root of Jesse who is the tree of life. So what is our hope in? That he is the desire that has been fulfilled. That he is the tree of life. Our hope is not deferred any longer. Advent. He arrived. In closing, in this Advent, in Advent season, hope can fill the heart. Desires of plenty will flood the mind in, in the upcoming year. Christmas lists will be written and distributed. Songs will be sung and meals will be shared. Just remember that the greatest joy and the greatest gift from the loudest cries from the greatest suffering was met with the response of the greatest hope. Jesus Christ. The fulfiller of the desires of the weary and burdened souls of sinners as the tree of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so in awe and in gratitude that you responded. That you are a God who takes action. That you are a God who considers our state and provides for us everything that we absolutely need. Not just simply what we desire. But you act in our stead. Our cries, our desires may be so short-sighted. May our hearts reflect the eternal gratitude and joy found in the fact that you have arrived. That you came. That you responded. And we get to walk in that faith every single day. Knowing with full assurance that God is faithful to his word. That you are faithful to your word. That our prayers don't fall on deaf ears. That our cries of repentance do not leave us hanging, waiting for another moment. That we have a tree of life in Christ Jesus that we can come to. Find delight in, find reprieve in, whose shade will cover us in the midst of the storm. 
who tabernacles with us every single moment of every single day. And when we fall, when we make mistakes, you hold us up. You are the living hope. Not a past hope, not just a future hope, but a living hope. That when we need it, we can turn to you. When we need it, we can observe you. We can look full into your wonderful face. And be delighted. So Lord, during this month, may our hearts reflect the hope to which we receive. That you are the one who responded. That you are the one who came for our prize. Into that which we celebrate your arrival. So Christ, let me pray.
eyes were out there, and God responded in action. The reason that we celebrate Advent is because of the reality that He did respond. And you have it available to you every single moment of every single day. So don't let Advent just be a time of remembrance now. But a living hope to which you carry every moment. Every breath you take is that of grace. And there are so many out there who need to know this very thing. There are so many out there who need to know that God responded to the woes of their soul. So during the month of Advent... Let us abide by the very commission we have been given. That people need to hear that God is faithful to His promises. So let's recite together the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a wonderful promise. But this hope wasn't just a one-time thing. It's an every-moment thing. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May His face shine upon you. Turn His countenance towards you and give you peace to see you. Amen.